through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, or bondservants, obey in everything those who are your early master, earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Uh, Father, now we come uh, to this uh, a text in one way that's not very hard at all. There are some glorious promises in it. And it reminds us that we are living all of our life under the lordship of your son, Jesus. And yet, Father, we understand that there are ways in which this text has been taken and twisted and made to serve a master that it was never intended to serve. Bless and guide our time now, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a young seminarian, I was introduced to a theological hero from a bygone era. R.L. Dabney was an old-school Southern Presbyterian who defended the substitutionary view of the atoning death of Jesus Christ from a series of attacks by those who were known as New School Presbyterians, many of whom were from the North. Dabney's work remains the classic American work on this disputed subject. It's beautiful, but it's not flowery. It's very, very well written. It's very solidly biblically reasoned. By the time he's done, you're left wondering how in the world anyone could view the atonement in any other way. But Dabney was a Southerner. He was a Virginian. And when the Civil War broke out, Dabney accepted an invitation from his friend Thomas J., soon to be known as Stonewall Jackson, to serve as his regimental chaplain. See, Dabney's wife and Jackson's wife were first cousins, and they were both Virginians. And Jackson was anxious that a real Bible-believing preacher be available for his men to preach to them before they went into battle. Dabney held that position until he got what was known as camp fever and had to return to his pulpit and his home. Shortly after Jackson died, at the invitation of his wife, Dabney took up his pen once again. And very quickly, I mean like within two months, he wrote an entire biography of the Confederate general. The book is fanboy worship at its finest. Dabney was very much enamored with his his fellow Virginian. And in the first hundred pages of this bit of fan worship, he defended the South's right to secede from the Union. He also, sadly, in those hundred pages, uses our text for this morning as well as the Old Testament reading from this morning and Ephesians chapter 6, to defend the southern antebellum institution 
of slavery. For all his biblical and theological brilliance, Dabney blatantly misread the Bible as a means to defend this abhorrent institution. Now, I hope that Dabney is not just someone that we stand in judgment over and wonder how anybody could be that dense and be that stupid, but I hope we will heed graciously the warning that is the life of R.L. Dabney. Friends, it's possible to get the gospel really, really right and still be really, really wrong on very important and crucial issues. And one of the things that I've been praying for is that subsequent generations will be much more gracious and understanding than our current generation is to anyone who has come before us. As we're going to see... Paul's passages on the relationship between master and bondservant have a very troubled history. Now, this doesn't suggest that Paul was wrong. Or one commentator I ran across this week suggested this, that Paul, uh, just like all of us, was sort of figuring this thing out on the fly, and this was the best he could do off the cuff. Rather, we need to understand that the church has misused and misread texts like Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6 and Genesis chapter 9, to defend things that are indefensible. Now, to make things even worse, if that were possible, the contemporary American evangelical church wants to pretend that since we no longer have slavery as an institution, this text somehow has nothing to say to us. And as we're going to see, I pray, both are wrong. On page five in your bulletin, you see the outline for our time together this morning. You see there also the big idea. The big idea is this. God's commands deal with the world as it is, not as a utopian possibility. God's commands deal with the world as it is, not as a utopian possibility. See, one of the common critiques when we come to texts like this in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul and of his work is this. Well, Paul should have just given the command that slavery be done away with. By the way, such folks are usually the folks who are also arguing, you know, Paul should never have written that wives should submit to their husbands. Or that children should be obedient to their parents. But when we say such silly things, there are a couple problems with it. One is, we misunderstand the very inspiration of the Bible itself. Friends, please note that Paul wasn't just making this up as he goes. This was not the best he could do, but rather, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have the sacred scriptures. Sometimes we refer to it this way. The Bible has a small a author and a large a author. The small a author is the Apostle Paul. The large a author is the Holy Spirit. So these words are not somehow the best that Paul could do. Rather, these are the very words of God that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote for our benefit, for our salvation, for our well-being. So the idea that somehow Paul could have done better reflects a heinously uh, insufficient view of what the Bible actually is. It is God's word. 
It is literally God-breathed. It is inspired by the Spirit of God. But it also has a view of reality that isn't very realistic. Yes, it would be wonderful if at some point all the ills of the world would go away. It would be wonderful if there was never such a thing as abusive marital relationships, or if there was never such a thing as abusive parent-child relationships, or if everybody felt well uh, affirmed in their work and there was never anything like slavery. But friends, we don't live in that kind of utopia. Now, as we're going to see, Paul reminds us, that day is coming, but it's not here yet. It's not a day that we can bring about. That day will happen, and it won't be a sort of utopian paradise. Rather, it will be the new heavens and the new earth that are going to be ushered in when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in power and in glory and in judgment. So as we think about Colossians chapter 3, and as we think about the demands that this text makes upon us, please understand, uh, Paul could not have just given a command to end slavery. The Lord intends for us to wrestle with and wrestle through what the text says, not what we want it to say, or not what we think it should have said. So first, uh, I'll take slavery in the Roman Empire for 2,000, please, Alex. We do need to acknowledge from the get-go that there was a difference between how slavery was practiced in the Roman Empire and how it was practiced, say, for example, in the antebellum South or in the United States as a whole prior to the Civil War. Slavery in the Roman Empire, uh, actually slaves constituted half of the population of the Roman Empire. So roughly 60 million souls alive when Paul is writing this would have been slaves. And so a slave revolt was one of the nightmare scenarios that kept the Roman ruling class up at night. Uh, think of the old Kirk Douglas classic, the movie Spartacus. The Romans came down hard on slave, result, uh, slave revolt because they understood it was one-to-one. -one. It was an even fight. And they very much did not want it to be an even fight. Now, one of the things that was the same in the Roman world as it was in the American South is that slaves were considered property, not people. But the reasoning behind it is very different. But there is an, an ancient Greek and Roman philosophical tradition that started from Aristotle that stated that slaves were, and I quote, articulate farm implements. They were tools. They were tools that you could talk to, and they would talk back. You could give them instruction. You could give them guidance. So they were a little better than donkeys or horses or oxen. But they were just farm implements. They were not people. And slavery in the Roman Empire was not necessarily race-based. This is where it's different from the slavery that we practiced in the South. Slavery in the Roman Empire was based upon the position of the empire in relationship to the rest of the world. So the Roman legions would go in, they would conquer a particular part of the world, say, for example, Germania, and as part of the spoils of war, they would take captives. They would bring them back, they would be sold off. And as part of the spoil of war, each Roman soldier would be given a percentage of, 
of the amount of money that was brought in by the selling off of these folks who had been taken as prisoners of war. So it wasn't because they were a particular color. It wasn't because they were a particular ethnicity. It was based on the fact that they were living in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the Roman legions happened to come in and to defeat their particular armies. Slavery was also a way that debtors could work off their debt to whoever it was that they owed money. You could indenture yourself, as it were, for a number of years, and at the end of that time, it was understood then that your debt was paid. But all those differences don't overlook, and they don't change what's a very fundamental fact. In all kinds of slavery, one human being owns and has an almost complete control over the life of another person. Well, friends, we know from the very beginning of the Bible that there's only one who has absolute control over the world. There's only one who has complete control over our lives. It's not our boss. It's not the corporation for whom you may or may not labor. It's not time and tide. It's not your owner. No, the only one who has complete control over our lives is God himself. And so Paul's words, as he discusses how it is that slaves and masters need to interact with one another, goes much deeper than simply saying, hey, slavery's bad, don't do it. Paul is here attacking the very ideas that undergird slavery as an institution. He's not simply banning it. Rather, he's letting Christians know that slavery presupposes a number of things that the Bible just won't let them believe. There are things that slavery has to say and believe about the world that these things are permissible, these things are okay. In fact, these things are even desirable. The Bible at every turn says, no, absolutely not. You cannot be someone's master. They have a master. That job is not open. But it's interesting that in the Roman Empire, the issue was not just how they viewed people. The issue, and this brings us to the second point, the issue is also how they viewed work. See, if Southern Presbyterians before the Civil War had a faulty view of race, then the Romans had a faulty view of work. Romans viewed work as a curse. Not that our work was cursed as a result of the fall, but that work itself was an accursed endeavor. And so the Roman elite took it upon themselves when I had enough money and enough power, when I had enough influence, when I became an elite, <clears throat> then I could basically thumb my nose to the gods by having other people do my work for me. I could live a life of leisure because I was no longer accursed. The gods had blessed me to the point that I didn't have to sully myself or dirty my hands by doing any kind of work. Well, if work is beneath you, 
then surely the people who do the work are beneath you as well. And what does Paul do? Verse 22, who does he address first? Slaves. And he's going to address slaves and masters in the same breath because Paul wants them to understand something. Namely, slaves and masters are both created in the image of God. He's made that point already, hasn't he? Remember what he said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11 here. In other words, here within the church, within the body of Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The church has the moral high ground on this issue. Every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being is of infinite worth and value because they bear God's image in a way that nothing else in creation does. It's sad then to think of the number of ways in which the evangelical church has surrendered that high ground that we've surrendered the legacy of understanding that all human beings bear the Imago Dei. One of my coaches in high school, a guy who I would probably still to this day, if he said, Mac, I need you to run through that brick wall. You'd see me unconscious in a crumpled mess because I had foolishly tried to run through that brick wall. If Coach Donahue said that's what we're going to do, then that's what we were going to do. And if he started quoting the Thundercats as he was wont to do, it was going to get re it'll get really crazy really fast. I'm just warning you right now. Coach Donahue was a special education teacher. And he noted as he progressed through his career that he was having fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer students. I remember talking with him once. And he was making that observation. And I said, well, coach, why do you think that is? He said, I'll tell you why it is. We do all these tests before the child's born. And when a mom and dad are told that their child carries, say, for example, the Down syndrome uh, chromosome, or when they're told that there's something wrong developmentally with their child, they choose to terminate the pregnancy. Well, that child bears the image of God. Folks who come to the end of their lives and we would say, oh, but their quality of life isn't very good. Well, that individual still bears the image of God. Friends, bearing the image of God is not based on how you function. It's inherent to who you are. All human beings bear the Imago Dei. Paul, by virtue of the fact that he talks to the slaves first, is making a powerful point. Hey, masters, they're not tools. They're not articulate farm implements. They're people just like you. And they bear the image of God just like you do. Well, after making his point, Paul goes on to talk about the nature of work. And he tells us under the third point, he distinguishes between working for the man versus working for the man. He wants us to understand clearly 
and plainly and without any doubt that uh, there's someone else who is our boss. Your boss is not your boss. Now they are to a certain extent. But Paul makes it clear to all of us that when we do our service, when it is that we are obedient, when it is that we go about our work, we are to do so first, not only in verse 22, with sincerity of heart but fearing the Lord, but nobody says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So in other words, he's saying to bond servants, he's saying to slaves within the church in Colossae, hey, you're, I know you think you're working for your master, but you're not because you have a new master. And you're working for him. Now, your earthly master may not appreciate the work of your labor. But Jesus sees it. And Jesus does appreciate it. It's why he wants it to be done well. It's why he wants it to be done with a sense of integrity and with a sense of earnestness. I love how he puts it in verse 24. And knowing then that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then just in case we missed it, he ends with this. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, Paul wants all the bond servants in the church of Colossae who came to him and said, Hey, are you serving your master? Yes, I am. I serve him wholeheartedly. And by the way, my master's name is Jesus. That's who I serve. Now, friends, that also means that any work that we do, any work that we are called to do, it doesn't matter how menial, it doesn't matter how much you think that kind of work is beneath you, it doesn't matter how mundane it is, but any work that you do is a means of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have children in diapers, and you are changing your 900th diaper for the day, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're making dinner and you have made dinner, it feels like 1.7 gazillion times in your life. In your making of dinner, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're filling out an expense report, which is the height of just Stupid drudgery. Please understand that by so doing, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I had lunch with a friend of mine Friday. He's a really interesting guy. Uh, he's retired now, but he spent his entire career as an architect. Uh, but he didn't come to faith in Jesus until he was 35. And so at age 35, here he is. He's a principal in a pretty major architectural firm. And he's now, because he's on fire. Jesus is saving, man. He's on fire. And now he's going, hey, should I be doing something else? Right? I, when I became an architect, I wasn't a believer. Now I'm a believer. So should I be doing something else? And interestingly enough, the Lord used his experience in his vocation to help him uh, he has, for several years, served on a number of different boards, one of most notably probably being the Open Door Mission in Omaha. 
because through his vocational work as an architect, he learned about these things called tax credits. And when you are a nonprofit organization and you need to expand and you need to expand for working with people who are at risk, there is so much money out there, it's not even funny. But you have to have somebody who knows how the system works to be able to access it. And guess what my friend had in spades? And that's when he said, I realized. Even before I was a Christian, God called me to be an architect. He used that so that I could serve him by serving the least of these. Friends, we're not just working for the man. We are working, as Paul says, we are serving the Lord Christ. Fourthly and finally then, we need to heed the words of Johnny Cash. We need to heed the words of Johnny Cash. Not ring a fire. Not I'm going to Jackson. Not Folsom Prison Blues, though all those are fabulous. I'm talking about Johnny Cash towards the end of his life and a song that he wrote called The Man Comes. Listen to the chorus. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying, some are born and some are dying. It's it's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree and it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Tell Armageddon no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise man will bow down before the throne. And at his feet they'll cast the golden crowns when the man comes around. Friends, Paul is painting for the Colossians the same picture he paints for the Thessalonians. That when they are suffering in their lives, when someone is treating them poorly, when someone is treating them wrong, when someone is doing wrong by them, they are not to seek their own vengeance, they're not to seek their own justification, but rather they are to understand that there is coming a day in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take everything that's wrong and he's going to make it right. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't seek justice. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to improve our lives. It doesn't mean that we just sit back and go, oh, well, God's going to take care of it. No, he's called us to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. He's called us to use our gifts in such a way as to help alleviate some of the effects of the fact that we live in a fallen and sinful world. This is not a call to inaction, but it is a call at certain points in time to just let it go. There is so much wrong in the world, and when you think about things that employers have done to you, or you think about institutions like slavery, and you find yourself getting so angry and so mad, and you just want your revenge. Paul says, no, masters, understand, you have a master in heaven. 
And I love how he puts it in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You're going, okay, the wrongdoer, is he talking about the servant or is he talking about the master? Yes. He's intentionally squishy on that. In the early 20th century, the tobacco market in the southeast United States was dominated by one family. Their last name was Duke. So if you need another reason to dislike Duke basketball, I'm fixing to give you another one. Founded in 1924, Duke University was a philanthropic donation given to the people of the Carolinas and to offer the, and I'm quoting Potter uh, Familius, a man named Washington Duke. The Dukes got ridiculously rich. I mean like obscenely Rockefeller rich in the years 1919 and 1920. And here's how they did it. The Dukes went to all of their agents, all of the houses, all of the sort of burly houses that would buy tobacco on their behalf. And they said to them, we're paying X amount, no more. If they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. Well, here's the problem. There wasn't anywhere else to go. So in the years 1919 and 1920, there were a number of tobacco farmers across the southeast United States who by the time they got done paying their warehouse fees owed money for the crop they had raised. Now, the Dukes turned around and took the tobacco and were still charged. In fact, they charged a little more for cigarettes in those years. They charged a little more. for Your nickel cigar became a six-cent cigar. And that's how they made their money. Now, if you're a tobacco farmer living in Kentucky or living in the Carolinas in 1919 and 1920, and you spend an entire year breaking your back to bring a crop in, and you take it to market, and you find out when all is said and done, you actually owe them money. What do you do? Where do you turn? What's your hope? You might hope that Washington Duke and his ilk would fall over dead. It's a justifiable hope. But there's got to be something more. There's got to be something greater. And do I just walk around with a sour look on my face, upset and angry because the world's so unfair and these people treated me badly and I want my two cents? Friends, believe me, I understand wanting your pound of flesh. But I love what we sang this morning. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. How can I keep from singing? Friends, judgment is coming. That should both scare us to no end, but it should also encourage us. That's how Paul used it for the Thessalonians. Hey, I know you're getting your brains beat in for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, but understand 
there's a day coming. The Lord's going to be revealed in righteous fire with his angels. And when that day comes, that's when you're going to be justified. At the table, which we're going to celebrate here in just a moment, we are reminded of whose we are. We're not slave free. We're not Anglo or non-Anglo. We're not male, female. We're not Republican or Democrat. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a master. And it's not a particular ideology. It's not your boss. It's not your career. It's not your spouse. Our master is the Lord Jesus Christ. The table also proclaims to us that Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he does, all the wrongs that are summed up for us so well in an institution like slavery, or in an institution in which there's such gross inequality that you're just left shaking your fist and wondering how in the world God tolerates it. Well, when Christ comes again, will those wrongs be made? Right. And the perfect justice that we long for, the perfect justice that our hearts cry out for, will address so much of the injustice that grieves us. I was talking about it uh, this week um, with, with uh, Jeff Schneider. You know, when you, if you read through the book of Revelation and you have the seven scrolls and you have the seven bowls and you have the seven seals, and by the time you get done, you kind of go, well, I don't think there's anybody left. And by the time you get done, you read it. Remember, we were preaching through it. It was like, okay, God, we get it. You don't like sin. You're going to judge it. And the response to it is just so, it's like, wow, this is a lot. Friends, understand that as we think about the world in which we live and as we think about the way in which we enslave one another, as we think about the ways in which uh, either real or, or imagined, as we think about all those things that are going on, there is coming a day in which all the wrongs are going to be made right. Now, that doesn't mean we just stand back and wait. The Bible has given us work to do. We are to do justly. We are to love mercy. We are to walk humbly with our God. But it means that all of these cries for utopia and all of these cries, if we'll just do this, 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 and this, everything will be perfect. No, it won't because we're still going to live here. But the Bible deals with the world as it is. And the Bible tells us that we have a Lord and Master. And it's Jesus. And this morning we're reminded of exactly what Jesus does for his people. Friends, our Master had his body broken and his blood shed to take our place and pay our penalty. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this it's uh, there is so much in our world. There is so much in the history of of just even how the church is understood and talk about these texts that just grieve us.
And while slavery is illegal, we know that there's all kinds of slavery going on in our world. And Father, we understand that there are, there's a, there are kinds of sort of indentured servanthood that aren't slavery by name, but close enough. So Lord, we pray that as your people, we will be salt and light. We pray that as we go to whatever uh, vocation to which we are called this week, we would do so understanding uh, we are serving the Lord Christ. And we will give an account. And so, Father, may we serve you joyfully. May we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ, not with frowns and wringing hands, but as we have sung, may we, understanding that because you are Lord of heaven and earth, may we go about our tasks singing. And may we go about our days understanding that there is coming a day. There is coming the day. And in that day, your son, the Lord Jesus, will be shown in power and glory and might and in judgment. And Father, uh, we can only pray with the Apostle Paul. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. For we ask this now in his name. Amen.